This is Animals Voice Podcast, presented by the Ontario SPCA, with 50 communities working together for animal welfare. We've got another great show for you on the way, so put your paws up, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Please be aware this episode of Animals Voice Podcast contains stories and content which may be graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Animals Voice Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin McKenzie, and uh, so thrilled to be joined once again. John Douglas is with me. John, we talked last summer. We sat in a room, and we just chatted, and we recorded it. And usually these podcasts tend to be 10 or 15 minutes in length. You were a wealth of information and knowledge. We, we turned it into a three-part series. I, I know. Yeah. And uh, thank you for that time. And thank you for agreeing to spend time talking to us again this year. Really appreciate it. For any listeners that aren't familiar with you, former FBI profiler, author of over a dozen. Yeah, it's over a dozen. Uh, yeah, books. I mean, yeah. books. And you were the model for the Scott Glenn character. In the Silence of the Lambs. You're not Hannibal Lecter. Scott no, no, Glenn. Let's, Scott be, Glenn. let's, let's be clear. Let's be clear. The way I described it to people after I met you last year is that you have worked on every major case I've seen reported in my life, you know, in watching mm-hmm. the news and in speaking to my father. Uh, I mean, he's, he was so fascinated yeah. that I got the chance to meet you and, and talk to you. Charles Manson, John Wayne Gacy, David Berkowitz, uh, the son of Sam, mm-hmm. James Earl Ray. I mean, it really reads a list and a scary list of people that you have dealt with and helped bring to justice. So thank you for that. We've spoken with you before about this in a previous podcast, but I need you to describe to us again, what is profiling in a nutshell? Profiling is, I wouldn't say the ability, but what what you're doing is you're looking at a, a case, say it's a homicide case, and based upon the preliminary police reports, based upon the forensic you know, evidence, victimology, which means the profile of the victim, what you're trying to do is to develop a composite, a behavioral profile of the offender. You're trying to paint a picture of what this offender uh, was like. And not only that, you're also trying to predict what his pre-offense behavior was, what the post-offense behavior was, because sometimes you may get a case where a profile may be way too vague, nonspecific. You do a case, say, in downtown Toronto, the profile may fit way too many people in the area. But certain things I could say with confidence is like the pre-offense behavior leading up to a specific crime. This is what this character, this is what this unsub would have been like, his, what his behavior would have been like. I could also talk about the post-offense behavior after the, the crime would have been, did he try to establish an alibi? Would he have left the area? It looks like he attempted to clean up the crime scene. It looks like perhaps he attempted to stage the crime scene to make it look like something else. So you're trying to paint this picture. But also, a lot of people, and due to the media too, they think that you, know, you can provide this analysis on every kind of case. And you really, you really can. And unfortunately, it's the more psychopathology there is, the more bizarre the case, like, like a Luke Magnata, the more bizarre case like that, it becomes clear as to who this person is. If somebody goes in and sticks up a liquor store and kills the, uh, the owner, there's not a whole heck of a lot you can do. Now, when, once an arrest is made, you know, perhaps I can help you and give you some ideas on how to interrogate this guy. I can possibly do that. If there's a series of liquor store holdups, perhaps I'm able to assist you in trying to predict where the next one may occur so you can stake it out, you know, uh, a, a particular part of uh, town. 
So, you know, that's what it is. And, and like anything, it drives me crazy looking at the news and everything, and I, is that some people call themselves profilers, mm-hmm. but they, they really don't have the background. And you really can't stop them. I mean, if you get on television, you take a class of mine, you can start calling yourself a profiler. Now, they may not believe you, your hometown, say, in Toronto, but, you know, it's the guy from out of town with the suitcase. You know, they say, you go 50 miles away. Oh, this guy, he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> and, and so you get these people on television for all the hard work that I and some of my colleagues did in the 70s and 80s and 90s going in these prisons working thousands and thousands of cases you get some of these people have no background have no idea they get on television during the DC sniper case and say it's gonna be a white male you know single white male a shooter and the guy who was shooting their mouths off had very little training. They no may, qualifications. No, they may have an FBI credential, mm-hmm. but that doesn't, so what? That doesn't mean anything unless you've gone through two years of extensive training at Quantico. And by your fifth year, by your fifth year, you really start to know what you're doing. But unfortunately, what happens by your fifth year, you're also starting to get burned out. Yeah, you're I was going to ask about that. You start getting burned out. So what you have here is a lot of these people showing up on television. They never went through any of that training. So it just, it, it's upsetting because it just kind of takes away from those of us who really founded this process, this concept, like I said, back in the very late 70s. Now, part of your research and, and the profiling you've done, you know, it's helped identify that cruelty to animals is often a red flag, that other bad, bad things are going to follow or could also be happening. When did that research begin on animal cruelty being involved in serial killers? Okay, the first big research project was by Dr. McDonald in the late uh, 1960s. He was a professor. Yeah. He came up with this, uh, this triad, the bedwetting, the fire setting, and the animal cruelty. He came up with it. And by late, like 1979, 1980, we joined forces with Dr. Ann Burgess from Boston College and the University of Pennsylvania. She just finished completing a heart attack study on prediction of men who would probably end up getting a heart attack down the road based upon their, uh, their lifestyle. She saw what we were doing. And she said, John, what you have to do is you got to go out and start doing these interviews in prison. we got to professionalize what you're doing, make it more academic. And so in the questionnaire, we had a 57-page questionnaire, Part of the the questions had to do with early childhood, had to do with animal cruelty and uresis bedwetting, as well as fire setting very, very early on in in our studies. And right away we began to see, particularly the animal cruelty. The animal cruelty is the big one. You may not always find an offender having all three of them, but the animal cruelty is the one that seems to show up all the time. So we began calling that the kind of like the gateway, the gateway to future crime against, uh, we would say, interpersonal violence. The thing that's really amazing, I'll be talking about at this conference here, is that study was done by us in the 80s. And, and our first book was called Sexual Homicide, Patterns and Motives. And we discussed these 36 uh, serial killers, the initial study. Well, the Bureau got it, the FBI got it, and aha, you know, and that became part of our profile of, of particularly of serial offenders, of serial rape, serial homicide. It became part of a profile. It wasn't until just last year since I left last year's conference, the FBI now has made that a Class A offense, and that what they're calling it is a crime against society. And what that means is it's going to be listed for police in the United States, these 17,000 different law enforcement agencies who fill out the uniform crime report so we can track and trace cases, the types of cases, the number of cases. They now are going to be able to put the category right up there with homicide, rape, all these violent crimes, and there will be animal cruelty listed there. In the past, they would put under other, under minor crimes. So the Bureau, even a persuasion of the National Sheriff's Association in the United States, 
and saw what we've published and even sense others that what have published and shown the correlation between the animal cruelty and, and interpersonal violence now, that it has gone into effect right now, this year in 2015. By 2016, you could start seeing the results of that. So rather than say somebody say like me will say, well, you know, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, he was involved in animal cruelty and cut the heads off of uh, cats and dogs and put it on stakes. Rather than someone saying it, what they're going to be able to do is to actually show you. They're going to be able to, to track this. And also it's going to have an impact, and it's already having an impact on penalties, on crime and, and uh, penalties in the United States. So, so they're taking this, you know, very, very, you know, serious yeah. right now. Where in the past, sounds like it. Yeah, in the past, they look at it as a, kind of like a nuisance. Or oh, this is something that little John, he's going to outgrow this fire setting and what he's doing to animals. But no, they're taking this seriously now. And all the, the SPCAs, the, the groups having to do with animals and, and helping the helping animals and protect them. They're all thrilled about this. And, and, uh, and like I said, by January of next year, the first year will be completed, and it'll be about three or four months after that. It'll be come out in the Uniform Crime Report, the FBI, which has been around since 1930. Okay. But for the first time, it's going to include animal cruelty. Now, you referenced Luca Magnata earlier. The Ontario SPCA investigated him quite some time before you investigated and worked on his case. What is the link between his acts against animals and the murder he committed years later? Really, I wasn't really up on the case. It was Darren was right over here. Yeah, he sent me a write-up on the case. I knew some of, the, some of it. Since this, I knew I was going to come back this year, mm-hmm. I started researching uh, the case. And in fact, it made me sick. I, and all the violence that I yeah. see, it made me sick even to, to go online, where this stuff is still online, how he's suffocating kittens and feeding a kitten to a, to a python snake and the killing of his lover with an ice pick. Social media were the ones who picked up on this and then provided it to the SPCA. And then the SPCA up here in Ontario can only do so much, too, because then it was spreading out. So they gave it to the Toronto police. And then it was shifted up to uh, Montreal. Then they gave it to the Montreal, the RCMPs. Mm-hmm. And that could be a problem, too, because you may not have everyone working in concert. Or you may, you may look at this as serious in, in your department, but another department says, hey, come on, we, we got bigger fish to fry, and you know, this is, you know, nothing here. If I saw that case come into my unit when I was a unit chief, and we were doing a thousand cases a year when I retired from the Bureau, it would have been put on the front burner. You definitely would have seen major that. Major red flag. And you would, a major red flag. And you would see the acting out. In fact, he's telling you he's, he's going to do it. He's going to advance. And the next thing is going to be you know, it's going to be humans. And it, it is so sadistic and so violent. And then because the, once his age, you see what his age was, he's getting, I think he was like very late 20s or so, and you do an assessment of him, you can just tell. I mean, he, he, he's one of these guys who comes across very, very uh, cocky, very, very you know, self-confident, but it's the other way around. He's really... Uh, insecure. De- insecure. He's really depressed. He has low self-esteem. How could this, this inadequate nobody, how could he do something? And to become a star, you know, he's applying for these reality shows and they're rejecting him. They're, he's losing his looks and he's doing, going through all this plastic surgery. He changes his name, but he really hates himself. So this is like his last hurrah to finally be, you know, look at me, try to catch me. You're so like stupid, police, you can't... You catch me and he's moving around and changing his identity photoshopping his image so he looks like he's has a backdrop at some place and you know like he's got a boat or something like that and he photoshopped it showing how he's got he's rich and you know he's he's very very successful you know the truth be known he, he isn't so when you see a case like that or let's even forget McNabb you saw a case like that with a child say eight years of age if you don't have 
any intervention at that at that age, this kid is going to be committing violent crimes. I mean, I have school teachers come up to me and they'll say, John, what you're presenting to us here, I, I've got students like this now that are in the fourth grade in fifth grade. And then you look in the backgrounds of them, and they come from the classic kind of, kind of backgrounds. There's abuse going on. There's domestic violence maybe going on within the, uh, the family. Someone else in the family is abusing an animal, so the child is parroting. You know, he sees what he sees a parent, the parent, uh, you know, doing this. It is very, very predictable. And so when people ask me, well, how do you become a profiler? So, you know, being a profiler, I say, who are good profilers are teachers. Teachers see it, but unfortunately, they can't do much about it sometimes. They're afraid, afraid to get involved. They're afraid to pass it on to the police, you know, that may investigate this because, you know, then they may be get in trouble. I know, I know, because my wife's a school teacher. She tells me this, uh, you know, all the, uh, the time. So is that knee jerk reaction, you know, people writing off saying, oh, they're kids. They're kids being kids, not necessarily good kids, but somewhere there has to be a line in the sand, I guess, that is drawn where that information needs to filter to other areas, whether it's social workers or the local authorities, the Ontario SPCA is an example, because you're saying it's a very valid predictor then of, of serious crime to come. I mean, there's always exploration. There's always curiosity. And so you may see a child will do this and hurting an animal. But the child is really not, you know, putting two together. It has to be told. It has to, there has to be some kind of intervention here. So you, you see something like that. But if you see continuation of uh, animal cruelty and where they're even enjoying the sadistic acts of hurting, hurting the animal, like receiving pleasure from hurting an animal, that, that's, that's very, very disturbing. And, and you're just not going to outgrow that. You're not going to outgrow it at all. If you see a child and, and abusing an animal, it's a great big predictor. It's a flag. It's a forensic flag, a, a red flag. And you just can't you know, turn your back on it and think it's going to go away. People need and, to take it seriously. Have, people, families have to take it serious. Schools have to take it serious. The police have to you know, take it serious. And since I had my presentation last year here, I have Googled alerts on animal cruelty. I am shocked at the numbers of cases. I mean, just like I'm going to be presenting like one tomorrow and another one I saw that will fit in with to Michael Vick. Michael Vick mm-hmm. comes from my state in you know, Virginia, but there's so much. I mean, I mean, like two guys in Florida, two teenagers throwing up puppies, and, and as they come down and hitting them with machetes, oh. you know, thing, you know th- things like that. I mean, it's just, it's just one thing, you know, after another, and it, it, it's all over. But what, what I like, though, I see now, it's the penalties and the police cracking down on this, and the judges. Are, are cracking down. They're not getting away with it. You know, like, you know, here's a little penalty, here's a little fine, be on your way. Now, now it's uh, much more serious. So with what you've been talking about and the, the developments in the States, I guess the FBI has said that animal cruelty is now a crime against society. Right. Do you see that being influential? Are we going to see that start cascading across other law enforcement and maybe leading to a greater level of communication between the different channels of law enforcement, be it animal cruelty or traditional law enforcement, the police? No, it it will. The problem we have in in the United States is we have over seventeen thousand law enforcement right. agencies. They, How do you know, make sure they're all? Yeah, well, yeah, well, they all have to complete the uniform crime report. They all have to 
to participate in that. They all have to fill out those forms on every kind of case uh, you know, they have. And they, they should because then they know how to, to use their resources. And you may see patterns and you'll see, you'll see tr- uh, trends. And, and then how, you know, if you see a pattern or a trend, then they can, they can advise, you know, the uh, Ontario, excuse me, SPCA or whatever police agency is investigating this and, and shows the seriousness. And, by, and like in our country, by having now the, like the National Sheriff's Association, there's sheriffs in every state as a sheriff's department, every county. They're the ones who want it because they saw this, you know, themselves. And so they, they said, hey, FBI, we want you to include this. So they got, everyone got together, and they came up with that. And like I said, this becomes a Class A offense, which is really something when I saw this, right there with, with homicides and other violent crimes. And this could be you know, plugged in there. We'll be right back with more of this interview with FBI profiler and author John Douglas. Hi, I'm Brad Dewar, an inspector with the Ontario SPCA. Every day, Ontario SPCA officers respond to calls of animals being abused or neglected. All animals in Ontario are required to be provided with basic standards of care. If you suspect abuse or neglect, call our toll-free 24-hour call centre at 310-SPCA or 7722. You can also email your complaint to cruelty at ospca.on.ca. Welcome back. Please be aware this episode of Animals Voice podcast contains stories and content which may be graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. When we started talking, I mentioned some of the cases, like the high, very high profile cases that you've dealt with in the past. Can you tell me a couple of examples from those cases? And I'm talking about the John Wayne Gacy's and David Berkowitz. I mean, yeah. can you name me some examples within those where animal cruelty was involved? Oh, gee, I, one guy. I, one of the earlier interviews I did was Edmund Emil Kemper. He's six foot nine. He was three hundred pounds. He killed his grandparents when he was a teenager. They sent him off to a uh, kind of a school for rehabilitation, and he uh, got out of there. And his goal was to become a police uh, officer. That's the other thing. A lot of these with serial offenders, they, they want to be poli- going to police type of uh, type of work. So his mother, though, he, mother hated him, and she put him down in the uh, the basement. Actually, it was more of a cellar, not a, like a basement where there was a gas furnace. And she hated him because she, uh, he reminded her of her husband. They got divorced. She loved his sister. Ed Kemper had a sister. And so what he would do down in the basement, he would get, he started off by getting dolls, inanimate objects, dolls, and cutting the heads off of the dolls. And he was getting in trouble with his mother. And then he, after that, what he started doing, he started getting, uh, getting animals, particularly cats. Now, I used to say, years ago, did profiling. I don't know if there's any scientific basis for this, but I used to see this. When it was a mother thing, it was cats, cats and cows. When it was a father thing, it was more of the uh, dogs, dogs and horses, and, and I saw. I, I never wrote about that. I just I would see. I would see this thing with him. It was cats. So then what happened was, is that uh, the mother was nagging, nagging, nagging him, and, he, and this guy was he was a big guy, but he would be bullied at school. And his mother worked at a university in California. And she said, you're never going to amount to anything. You're just a bum, just like your father. You'll never be able to date these girls at this university. And that pushed him out the door. Now forget the animals. Now he's going for college co-eds. He ends up killing seven college co-eds. What does he do to them? The same thing he did with the cats, cutting the heads off, and the dolls. And he would bring the heads home with him. Bring the heads home and put them in his closet. And then later on, he would actually bury the heads outside of his mother's window. The final, the final ending to the story is 
he has enough from, from his mother. As his mother's sleeping one night, he hits her in the temple with a ball peen and a hammer. We will be right back with John Douglas, former FBI profiler. Douglas goes on to describe more details of this case, but we have omitted this content because of its graphic nature. Join us as we get back to our conversation with John. And then he goes on the run thinking that he's going to be a wanted man, like the cops know about. The cops didn't know about. They knew about his crimes, obviously. They knew about even the animal cruelty kinds of things back then. But they didn't know now that he killed his mother. No one found him. Yes, so he ends up driving to Pueblo, Colorado, gets on the telephone and calls back and tells the police in Santa Cruz, California, that I killed my parents, my mother, and whatever, and end up making the, the arrest. When I interviewed this guy, 143 IQ, this guy, smart as a whip. He was assigned to give psychological exams to other, other inmates. So he, had, he knew all the buzzwords. And he knew if he wanted to act like schizophrenic, he knew how to act schizophrenic or catatonic. I mean, he knew everything. He was just a smart ass is what he is. Now, what, people will ask me, can you stop a guy like that? I truly believe that Ed Kemper never would have killed cats, never would have been decapitating the heads of his dolls or killed his mother or those college co-eds had there been intervention early on. At a young age. At a young age. At, at a young age. Because at the same time, when they're talking to you, he starts getting real emotional about how he was treated by his mother, where they hate the mother, but they love the mother. It's, it's a mixed vibration here that they're getting. And I do not believe that he would have progressed had there been intervention at, at an early age. He could have been a successful successful person and uh, but he just had, had all this anger in, inside of him first of all you're a retired fbi profiler <laughs> but but frankly you you have a very busy version of retired because when yeah, i see I your schedule I, I listen <laughs> do you watch the news and see cases that are ongoing and pick up the phone and call into your I used your to do I, I used colleagues to do and say, hey, yeah. I think you need to consider this or that. Yeah, I, I, I used to do it a lot, or I'd call the department up, or you know, I'm, I'm just surprised they hadn't you know, solved the case. Or The media does, is not getting everything about the case. You know, there's so many armchair profilers that sit on these, on these different websites and they're profiling, but they, they don't have the insight. I know, but, but you but, picking up but the but phone and calling things. is different oh, yeah. than I mean, one could, of the armchairs, yeah, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I could, but then again, but then there are other cases where I'm, do, I'm doing one right now where the cops wrote off this girl overdosing on Bactine, uh, on Bactine, uh, and she pierced her ears and used Bactine so she wouldn't get an infection. Uh, she's 16 years of age, and she takes the parents' car and she drives the car over to Baltimore. And she wouldn't know how to drive around the block, but she drives to Baltimore. Three thugs say they find her in the backseat of the car, and they realize that she's dead, that, that she's dead. And so they carry her out of the car, and they, and they steal the car. The cops write this off for overdosing on Bactine because there's a, a little half a bottle of Bactine. And there's no way that this is, uh, you know. So the parents, in this case, came to me because I helped this other parent where I kept this guy in prison. And they said, you ought to have John take a look at this. So I took a look at this, uh, you know, this case. And uh, the autopsy, the cops lost the brain. So we don't have that. The heart is missing. We just found that out. They, they can't find all the reports. So in those kind of cases, please don't want me. They don't want me to be uh, looking at the case because they screwed up the damn case. I have another one in Philadelphia. The same thing. I, I was asked to work on a 43-year-old homicide case. So I go over there. The homicide took place 43, 43 years, years ago? Wow. 43 years ago. And I think I could do something. A girl was decapitated. The body was moved to another state. So I go there because I know the cops and, and the FBI National Academy. We put police through an 11-week program at the FBI Academy. And so you get to know all these cops 
all around. So I didn't know these guys personally, but it's like the fraternal organization. They went through the FBI, and they probably had courses from someone like me. I started looking at the case, and they delay, delay, delay. You know, and I go over and I meet with them, and uh, they say they lost the boxes. They lost 13 boxes of material. Then I'm thinking, are they just you know BSing me or something like that? But then this lieutenant sends a, a communication. He w- he lost it. He he lost the. Yeah, I, I saw him back. I said, man, if the parents knew that you lost these cases, yeah. I mean the, the, these uh, 13 boxes, and the case could never be solved. So my point to you is, is sometimes I know too much and even when i was developing profile in the uh, 70s you go on a case they may not want to share things they're they don't want you to see things because they botch things up they didn't do things thoroughly whether it was the preliminary police report the handling of the evidence but going back to what you're saying do i see case? Oh, yeah i see cases but i don't i don't do as much as uh, I, I i'm called all the time to do cnn all every, right. every I, I week i see you all over the well i don't the news I, try, I don't do i, I could have been on this week there's well, right now, there's two guys just escaped from prison, upstate New York. They're, it's on CNN. Yeah, yeah, I've been reading right now. So, so I, I just tuned it in in my room, and I and I, and I know the the agent. He's an assistant director, but he's not a profiler. You know, he's a good guy for investigations. But I know darn well. I, I don't get service on my phone up here, but I know they're calling me. But I am not going to. I live 50 miles from D.C. They'll say, we'll come get you, John, and drive you. For what, three minutes, five minutes? of? Uh, I don't need it. I, I, I don't. And what am I going to I'll only do something that I think I can help the public, you know, okay. you know, something along those lines, like for the media. But most of the time, I just, you know, I don't want to be just another talking head. So, so put the media aside. Do you find that you're getting asked for assistance or consulting? Like you've mentioned Philadelphia, the case you were yeah. working on. And, and it, like... Are you getting calls about cold cases or newer cases, or is it just a mix? Cold, of it? It, well, it's cold, it's cold, and just right now I have a, another agent who used to work for me, and he's on um, Utah. We're, we're forming a cold case foundation, and was just approved by the Internal Revenue Service, which will be cold cases, and we're going to get funding. And so, what we can do is say, if your police department comes to us, wants some help, well. Not only maybe can we can help you in profile, but maybe not. But we have money that can help you to do some forensic examinations that your okay. department may not have available to you. We can bring some other, maybe a medical examiner here, good forensic pathologist, you know, to help you out. So I'll be getting more of those kinds of, you know, cases. But, you know, it's, you know it'll be 20 years since I left the Bureau this, you know, this month. It doesn't even seem like it. And so there's another phase, another, there's another a wave, say, behind me. But I'll tell you, someone asked me this the other day. I'll take my wave back then because we were doing a thousand cases with a dozen agents. They have like two to three dozen agents, and maybe they're doing a thousand. And we were doing original research from a law enforcement investigative perspective. That's why I called my unit the investigative support unit. It was called the behavioral science investigative support unit. When I became unit chief, I tell everyone. I dropped the BS. I got rid of the BS. <laughs> I became the investigative support. I do not want to associate myself with behavioral science per se. But a lot of the agents who are working for me, people in my unit, they're not necessarily have behavioral science backgrounds. They could be just a business degree, a music degree, but they were damn good investigators, and that's what I want. So, so that's what we came up with our own terminology. So you really won't be hearing like me or others you know, from my, my era here talking about you know, schizophrenics, you know, the, the narcissistic. Yeah, I know, I know what it all means, but we came up with our own terms. Because you get a case like Charles Manson. Manson could be called 
Or he has personality disorder. Oh, then he was schizophrenic. Yeah. And then, oh, he was a sociopath. Oh, no, he was a psychopath. So what does that mean? It doesn't mean nothing. Those are words. Describe the behavior. What does that, you know, describe what it means to be that kind of a person. And that's what cops, uh, you know, understand. This is the first episode in our two-part series with author John Douglas, FBI profiler. Stay tuned in two weeks for the second and final episode with this honored guest. Thank you for joining us for another edition of Animal's Voice Podcast. Don't forget to check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and at our website, ontariospca.ca. Animal's Voice Podcast is a production of the Ontario SPCA. The Society would like to thank all our supporters. Together, we are the Animal's Voice.